Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Jazakumullah khair, Brother Danish and uh, Brother Ubaidah for that recitation as well. So alhamdulillah, we're here today. Are we not? So we're here to discuss certainty in the age of doubt. Now, alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us with a degree of common sense and we apply this common sense in various areas of our life. I don't know the way to North Kuji. What do you do? You take out your phone, GPS, right? That's the most logical, the most common sense you know, step you would take in achieving that objective, in reaching that destination. Isn't that correct? So, we take logical steps and we do these things almost instinctively. Now what we're concerned here with today, inshallah, and which I wish to share with everyone here today, is the type of religious doubt that potentially undermines one's faith. And could even lead one to maybe perhaps abandon Islam altogether. I'd like to highlight three core umbrella categories of doubt. The first is the moral and the social concerns that people have as a result of which we have doubts. These concerns, they reflect the potential anxieties that arise when an individual must reconcile their understanding of Islam with the norms and the ethics of society. And these ethics and these norms and our religious doctrines, our religious beliefs, they seem to be contrary to the anti-Muslim assertions that have gained prominence in the past decade. The overwhelming majority of Islamic doctrine and practice we say is wholly compatible with living as an Australian citizen. But as with any comprehensive doctrine, there will be certain issues with mainstream interpretations of Muslim beliefs and practices that are at odds with dominant cultural understandings. These tensions and conflicts, they become an impetus for our doubt. The second kinds of doubts, and we'll unpack this, inshallah, just a little bit in a few moments. Are philosophical or, or what we would call scientific, di uh, scientific concerns. These concerns, they critique Islam from the presumption of irrationality. That religion is irrational, in generally, and in particular Islam. And these doubts, they center around ideas like, you know, the evolution versus creation debate, the general perception uh, that scientific knowledge is conflicting with the fundamental religious beliefs that we have as Muslims, or the inability to prove certain foundations of our faith that seem unable to be resolved, such as why would an all-good God, an all-kind and merciful God, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, allow evil to exist in the world? Why even have this creation which you know 
would, would do bad things and would cause bloodshed and so on and so forth. And number three, the types of you know, doubts that stem from personal trauma. And this, this particular one, it, it actually encompasses trauma that is brought on through intimate events and interactions. Sometimes they're acute, like a death in the family. Or, or they could be prolonged, like for example, recurring physical or mental or emotional abuse. Or they could be interactions that you've had at a community level where an individual feels like they've been discriminated against or otherwise unwelcome in a religious space, in Muslim spaces, in a masjid, for example, or somewhere else. Now, there are some questions about Islam that deal with issues um, which, which perhaps even qualified scholars, and I'm talking about scholars who have been trained in the traditional sciences, have not studied. In traditional institutions, scholars are not trained to deal with issues of modernity, for example. They don't speak to them about liberalism and secularism, secularism and feminism and Western cultural norms in general. What we're trained to do is speak about usul al-fiqh, and fiqh and usul al-tafsir and mustalah al-hadith and asma' al-rijal and this and that and for some of us that's like gibberish mate talk to me about something that I can actually understand so in traditional institutions we're not taught these things this session inshallah will seek to explore some of the issues of concern to the Muslim populace relating to modernity and living and surviving through it by dealing with the doubts that we face. Now, I'm just going to unpack this a little bit. Social and moral concerns. What is the battery of the potential sources of you know, doubt that we have? Moral and social concerns. In this you can say there's a whole host of issues that can be discussed. For example, you know, the teachings about the role of woman in society. The hypocrisy of religious people. That is the non-religious behavior of supposedly religious individuals. The bad things that people do in the name of religion. The intolerance that some religious people show towards other faiths, for example. The way that religious people sometimes insist that there is only one right way of understanding and practicing Islam. The intolerance that, that some religious people show towards certain other people who follow a very different you know, lifestyle. For example, um, you know, LGBTQ is a very, is a very common example. Philosophical and scientific concerns, they center around, you know, discussions like the debate over evolution through natural selection versus creation um, and through God. What is that whole process? 
uncertainty over the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or of a God in general, the problem of evil and unfair suffering in the world, feeling that certain religious beliefs or practices do not really make sense in light of modern science, in light of modern ethics, in light of modern politics and so on. And personal trauma or difficulties that we face on a regular basis. This centers around questions like finding religiosity and how maybe perhaps that does not maybe fulfill me or make me happy. It does not um, really get rid of my depression or my anxieties in life. Not feeling welcomed in your faith community. The death of a loved one. Your engagements with your parents. Your interactions and your problems within the, the domestic space, for example. Right? Issues between siblings. Abuse. Wife and husband relations. Financial strains and loneliness, especially in the COVID climate, uncertainty and insecurity. These are things which, which definitely um, you know, affect and which contribute to the doubts that may develop and will perhaps over time will fester into something um, which will lead into some kind of decision-making process that an individual will go through. Now how do, like, I'm just going to unpack this even further and say, okay, we have a lot of problems that we need to speak about. Um, and then right before the end, inshallah, so I'm not going to speak for very long, maybe 45 minutes, that's the time that, well, actually 50 minutes that I've been assigned, but I'll speak for... A little bit less, hopefully, inshallah, that's the plan. But I'll try to leave a good amount of time for question and answer so that I can hear from you. And maybe we can discuss a few things that is on your mind, inshallah. How do practicing Muslims deal with other practicing Muslims? Especially when they don't see eye to eye. Individuals who want to be faithful have to choose their interpretation of faithfulness. Isn't that correct? We all have to make a decision about what kind of Islam, what interpretation of Islam we affiliate ourselves with or we incline towards and then, and then go ahead and, and start practicing and start believing. Right? All of us, without exception, will choose a particular paradigm such as, and just to give examples, inshallah, we'll speak as, as candidly as possible. Am I going to be a Salafi Muslim, a Sufi Muslim, a Tablighi Muslim, a Jamaat Tablighi Muslim, an Ikhwani Muslim, and, and so on? How do you treat Muslims? So when we identify with these different strands of Islam, how do you treat Muslims who choose the group that is not your group? The affiliation that is not your affiliation? How do you deal with intra-Muslim hostility? What are the causes for the legal and the theological controversies? How do we deal with each of these controversies? The hadith of the 73 sects, what does it actually mean? In every other, is every other group misguided? Are they going to hell? Am I going to Jannah? Faith and reason. 
atheism and thinkers that popularized many different ideas, especially in our times like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens and other people, exposed to these ideas as Muslims, we think about the evils of religion or we're exposed at least to the idea of evils of religion, the existence of evil, theodicy, how do we justify the existence of evil as Muslims or as people of faith? The Islamic response to these modern questions, the role of the intellect in Islam, what is it? Muslims and evolution, the compatibility with the Quran, what's the whole deal with the creation of Adam and then the theory of evolution? In, in our times, I would say the fact of evolution. Maybe we can talk about that in, in Q&A. What is the Muslim response? Is Islam opposed to scientific inquiry? Are good non-Muslims going to be saved? Why is there eternal punishment? Isn't that cruel? And does Islam preach a hatred of the others, loyalty to Muslims and disloyalty to non-Muslims? Feminism, what are, what are the gender roles in Islam? Are Islamic gender roles regressive? Are they backward? Are they barbaric? Are some ideas of feminism compatible with Islam? If so, what is and what isn't? And who decides what is and what isn't? Gender interaction, is this, I'm facing a mixed audience right now. Is this even halal right now? Equality and rights, LGBTQI. Are there any more? Okay, All right. Even liberalism, are there positive aspects of liberalism? Are there negatives? What are they? Is Islam compatible with the modern liberal system? There are many strands that reject Islam. There are progressive strands. There, there is liberalist Islam. There is, there is traditional conservatism. It's even hard to say. There are Muslims who are doing moderate reform, extreme reform, radical reform. There are Muslims who grapple with their national identity. I'm a Muslim. What does that mean for me as an Australian as well? How do I deal with that? Am I loyal to Australia? Am I loyal to Muslims or Islam? Is there harmony between the two? What about citizenship? What about my connection with the rest of the Ummah, the members of the Ummah who are outside of Australia? How does that work? Is it okay for me to wish well for them? Is it okay for me to feel, you know, feel the fact that there are other people in other parts of the world who are going through oppression, who are going through difficulties, and who need help? How do I help them while still maintaining my Australian identity? Now, all of these questions, there are a lot of questions. But... What I wish to just present to you, a snippet of some amazing results for the sources of doubt. There was a study done, a groundbreaking study very recently, maybe around about last year or this year sometime. It was done by a Muslim who was studying religious and political attitudes. He did a qualitative survey and he surveyed religious leaders 
And he surveyed them to see what they think are the primary drivers of doubt. What are those things that cause doubt? Religious leaders. Then he turned to the constituent Muslim community, non-leaders, right? the general Muslim community. And he surveyed them on their feelings. What do they think are the sources of doubt? And the conclusion was, it's, it's, it's a detailed study, but I'm just giving you the crux and the conclusion of what, um, what the study concluded. That the actions of Muslims, now pay attention, the actions of Muslims are the primary drivers of doubt over time and not the doctrines of Islam. The actions of Muslims and not the doctrines of Islam. The top four drivers of doubt actually come from social and moral concerns. The way that some Muslims insist, and this is, this is an actual empirical study done. The way that some Muslims insist that there is only one right way to practice your faith. That was really popular as a reason amongst the Muslim community as being the source of doubts that they have about Islam. Number two, the bad things that people do in the name of religion. That was the second most popular. The third most popular. The intolerance that some religious people show towards other faiths. And number four, the non-religious behavior of supposedly religious individuals. And you know what the study found? When, when they surveyed religious leaders, there were some areas of overlap. Yes, they talked about the four points that I just mentioned. But their understanding was that the focus and the main and the primary drivers of doubt were more to do with the intellect and science and reason. Whereas the studies, they actually showed that it was the exact opposite. Yes, some of these intellectual um, you know, ideas were sources of doubt as well, but the primary drivers were social. Now, there is no doubt, yes, pun intended, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran speaks about this theme quite a lot. The word for doubt, there are a few words for doubt, but of them is the word shak in Arabic. And of them is the word dhan. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala repeatedly in the Quran, um, he, he references this theme over and over again in different contexts with different meanings. In fact, you know, sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also, um, also references it in the, context of, in the context of certainty but without seeing. Certainty without seeing. الَّذِينَ يَظُنُّونَ أَنَّهُمْ مُلَاقُوا رَبِّهِمْ وَأَنَّهُمْ إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ Those who do ظن الَّذِينَ يَظُنُّونَ Those who do ظن Those who think right? أَنَّهُمْ مُلَاقُوا رَبِّهِمْ 
that they will have a meeting with their Lord. They will be meeting their Lord eventually. And that they will be returning back to him. Now here, all of these scholars mention what this means. This is talking about the people of faith. And this word, van over here in this context, is in the context of not being able to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not being able to see and experience physically the metaphysical. The angels and the afterlife and all of that. The unseen. Not being able to experience it. It's talking about عَيْنُ الْيَقِينَ أَلْهَاكُمُ التَّكَاثُرُ حَتَّى زُرْتُمُ الْمَقَابِرُ كَلَّا سَوْفَ تَعْلَمُونَ ثُمَّ كَلَّا سَوْفَ تَعْلَمُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala references the, the certainty of physically looking and experiencing something that is the highest form of yaqeen that is the highest form of certainty but there is a form of certainty which is below this i am certain that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists but i haven't seen him i am certain that china exists i've never been there you've been there Shira? quite a few times so i have certainty that china exists I've never been there though, I've never experienced it. I've seen Chinese people, I've met them, I like them, and so on. Right? I have certainty that a place geographically exists. Now, so there are degrees of doubt and there are degrees of certainty. In fact, when we look at when we look at doubt, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also references the doubt of prophets. Interesting. وَإِذْ قَالَ إِبْرَاهِيمُ رَبِّ أَرِنِي كَيْفَ تُحْيِي الْمَوْتَ When Ibrahim said to his master, رَبِّ أَرِنِي كَيْفَ تُحْيِي الْمَوْتَ Oh my master, show me how you give life to the dead. قَالَ أَوَلَمْ تُؤْمِنْ He replied, you don't believe. قَالَ بَلَى No, I do. But it is for my satisfaction. It is for me to be at peace. It is for me to have that contentment. What we would call The type of certainty that grounds you after seeing it, after experiencing it physically. And that's the kind of certainty that Ibrahim was seeking. And it's very interesting, I'll get to this inshallah. There is a hadith which talks about this very ayah, we'll get, which we'll get to right at the end. How do we respond to doubts? How do we as human beings, as Muslims, respond to doubts? We read our holy book or other religious materials, read the hadith, we go and we research and we say, look, I'm having doubts about whatever. I'm going to go and research. I'm going to, I'm going to go on this website. I'm going to go on that website. I'm going to pick up this book. I'm going to pick up the Quran. I'm going to try to read through. I'm going to go through, scour through these, you know, these lists of ahadith. That's one way. Another way is to talk with friends or relatives who belong to your religion, who belong to your faith. So, yeah, I don't have the time to research and all that kind of stuff. I've got problems. I've got doubts. I need to speak to someone. Sheikh Wa'il, I need to speak to you. And he will give you 
half an hour, maybe more, and you'll have a chat with him. Or perhaps, yeah man, these religious folk, if I go to the sheikh with, with this problem and I tell him, I've got this problem where, you know, I'm having relationship issues. Are you married? No. Awkward. Right? So the sheikh is going to judge me and say, Haram, astaghfirullah, and pray tawbah. Right? So that's, that's going to be the reaction. And therefore, I don't want to go to a sheikh. Why would I go to a sheikh? I'm going to speak to my friend at uni. I'm going to speak to someone else who I trust. Maybe I'm going to go to a family member, an older sister, for example, a sibling, whatever. Right? That social connection, you will try to find the answers through that social connection. Or perhaps you feel like nobody understands my situation. I've spoken to people. I've spoken to that, uh, that one and this one. And they've got some things in common with me. But my, my particular situation, nobody knows what I'm going through. I don't have any other recourse. I'm going to make wudu. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to cry my eyes, my eyes out in prayer. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows my details. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows everything that I'm going through. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows it better than me. And He knows how to solve it as well. And so some people would go and they would pray for enlightenment, for guidance. Or some people would go and talk to a religious authority. Right? Which we talked about. Or they would turn to websites or modern books. Um, they would seek out people from other religions, perhaps. That's one way of looking at it. I'm not satisfied with my religion. Let me go to people outside of my faith, broaden my horizons and see if there are satisfying answers in other places which I'm not yet exposed to. And they will decide to seek the truth Sometimes even if it means leaving your own religion. Or they would purposefully, uh, they would turn to resources or sources that went against your own personal religious beliefs. Or they might even talk with people who have no religious beliefs. And they would ask them questions, why didn't you believe? Maybe they have something in common. Maybe they have the same grievances that you have. And they go to people who, who have lost that faith and who had maybe some common grievances or some common problems. Feeling doubts is a natural part of the human existence. It is normal to have the waswas from the shaitan. It's normal to have those fleeting thoughts running through your mind. Sometimes, for many of us, they're just fleeting thoughts. They come into your mind and you're repulsed by it. And then they leave your mind. And then you're happy again. But sometimes, these doubts, they come. And they come again the next day. And they come again the day after that and the day after that. And they keep coming and they keep coming until a time where they are festered in your mind and it is up to a level of disturbance. I am disturbed by these thoughts. I am disturbed by these ideas. I cannot, you know, I cannot function now in my everyday life and just continue to ignore 
and you know just continue to follow my everyday routine and just ignore all of these these disturbing images and these disturbing thoughts in my mind and it reaches that level now it's always good to ask reasonable questions in a reasonable manner in fact there were people who come to the prophet sallallahu who would come to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and they would ask him questions you know there was a social issue everybody has heard of the pact of hudaybiyah raise your hands if you have maybe you haven't because of, are you guys awake <laughs> so the pact of hudaybiyah was a pact which the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam enacted with the very Quraysh, the tribe which threw him out, which oppressed him and his people, and a whole long list of problems that happened. Because of which the Prophet ﷺ, along with his people, had to migrate to Yathrib or Medina, Al Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ, then many years later met up with them at a place called Hudaybiyah and he enacted a peace treaty with certain conditions and these these conditions and these clauses in that treaty was so you could say you know apparently not in favor for the Muslims not favorable towards Muslims that many of the companions were visibly upset foremost amongst them Umar ibn al-Khattab he comes to the Prophet ﷺ and he asks him, Why are we doing this? Are we not on the truth? Are we not correct? Why do we agree to these conditions? Why are we, why are we humiliated like this? We've gone through so much. We've gone through battles. We've gone through all of these problems. We've lost family members. We've lost our homes. Right? We've gone through a lot. And after going through all of this, we're enacting a pact which humiliates us further. The Prophet ﷺ gave him a response. But then he wasn't, he wasn't very satisfied. He went to Abu Bakr and he told him the same things that he told the Prophet ﷺ. And Abu Bakr, عنه, normally a gentle person, grabbed him by the beard. Must have had a long beard grabbed him by the beard and he said, Ya Rajul, oh man, come to your senses. Have you spoken to the Prophet ﷺ? Yes, then come to your senses. This is the Messenger of Allah ﷺ whom you are questioning. And so questions are good. They are sometimes you know, posed by very great people as well. Right? And these questions, sometimes those questions were not, were not satisfied with the answers that we receive. And this happened to many people of the past, great people in the past. But what did they take a recourse to? And this is what I want to, inshallah, end the session with and then we'll open the floor for question and answer. What is it that they took recourse to? Who 
وأخر متشابهات فأما الذين في قلوبهم زيغ فيتبعون ما تشابه منه ابتغاء الفتنة وابتغاء تأويله وما يعلم تأويلهم إلا الله والراسخون في العلم يقولون آمنا به كل من عند ربنا وما يذكر إلا الباب It is him, it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala الذي أنزل عليك الكتاب who has revealed to you the ordinance the, the book, the kitab, the instruction, the manual منه آيات محكمات In it are signs, are verses which are muhkamat, which are fixed, unchanging. They drive everything else, the universals, wrong to kill people, one God, last prophet, be nice to people, treat people well, love your parents, obey your parents, don't cheat, tell the truth. Right? These are things which everybody knows. Don't speak bad about people. And don't slander people. Make sure you preserve the chastity and the honor and the reputation of people. These are things which all of us know them to be from Islam. Isn't it true? There's nothing like, yeah, lying, honesty. Difference of opinion in that one, brother. Some scholars say you have to be honest. Some scholars say you have to be dis... No, man, that's just... These are things which are fixed, which drive our behavior, right? And these are the concepts and the teachings and the values and the ayat that we take a recourse to when we have doubt. Because there are many other ayat there are other ayat which are not muhkamat basically ayat which have a level of ambiguity a level of unpacking that scholars need to do or perhaps even unpacking that cannot happen yes there are ayat Areas where unpacking cannot happen, even by scholars, by anybody, because they are the domain of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His knowledge. And that's why there are areas which are not irrational, but super rational. They are not, they are not against our rationality, they are just beyond our rationality. And there's a difference between the two. There's something which is hey, that's, that's common sense. And then it's like, that doesn't make sense. And then there are things like, I don't know. I don't have enough information to decide if that makes sense or not. I don't know the context. I don't know what it's, what it's addressing. I don't know what it's talking about. I don't have enough information about it. Do aliens exist? Wallahu a'lam. <laughs> right? We don't know. That's not something that, that Muslim scholars can answer. That's not something which... I have 15 minutes to go. I'll stop before that, don't worry. That's not something that Muslim scholars can answer. And that's not something which perhaps even um, empiricists have been able to answer until today. They're still, still searching. Miles, 
We have the reach now, Shaykh. China. China. <laughs> right? So, that's a domain that is unanswerable, if that makes sense. So, inshallah, in the question and answer session, we may discuss a few other things which I have actually even been brought up before this lecture with Brother Ali. Is he around? Brother Ali is here. Yeah, so there are a few questions which have been brought up even before this lecture, which perhaps we might address in the Q&A, because, um, well, the actual reason is because I've, I've got an ear-splitting headache, and I think <laughs> if I start twitching, it's... <laughs> Anyways, we'll stop here for now, inshallah, and uh, we'll take some questions. We'll, we'll hear from you. Is there a mic for the people? We should give power to the people. Alright, inshallah. I'll let you take over and then we can. Alright, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa Once again, a few questions here. Um, we'll deal with them one by one, inshallah. What would you say to those who say Islam needs to be modernized? Um, it depends what you mean by modernized. If you mean by that, Islam needs to be like the literature, Islamic literature, needs to be updated in order to address modern issues. 100%? 100%, why not? Right? But if you mean by modernized, let's delete this ayah. Let's, yeah, that, that one right there. I don't know about that one. So if you mean by modernized, that we get rid of certain notions which are a given in Islam. Now, I'd like to answer this question in a little bit more detail, just to give us an idea as to what's involved with Islamic hermeneutics, um, Islam, the Islamic process of arriving at certain conclusions as to it being, um, you know, on the basis of our Islamic texts or the Islamic, if you like, um, the Islamic objectives or motives. There are areas in Islam, and we alluded to this in the talk, there are areas in Islam which are fixed, which are which, which we would call in different terminology, you know, agreed upon or fixed, unchanging. Um, and these are things like we mentioned earlier, one God, that's never going to change. The finality of prophethood with the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, that's never going to change. The five times prayers in Islam and that being an obligation, that's never going to change. The five pillars of Islam, certain areas of practice or the idea of certain rituals and practices as being either an obligation or a part of Islam, these are things, there are a lot of things like that which would be fixed. Now, are there areas which there is a bit of negotiation back and forth? Yes, there are. So, five times prayer is obligatory. What about within the five times prayers? Where do I place my hands? Do I place it here? Do I place it here? Do I, do I stand like that? When I'm in the tashahud position, am I like pointing the finger? The halal one. Or am I moving it? Am I not doing anything with my fingers? What's, 
What's that? There is, there is negotiation, you'll find, in the books of legal practice. Some scholars would say, yeah, do the finger thing. The other one would be like, nah, that's not, that's not really substantiated from our text. The others would say, place your hands on your chest. No, 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 that's, that's, that's not the right way, bro. You've got to do it over here. So there is a bit of negotiation as far as, as far as the tertiary issues go. And there have been differences in the past from the first generation of the Muslim community. And that will continue to, those differences will continue to exist. And as new and novel issues arise, which were not faced by the early Muslim community, those new and novel issues will necessarily have the same or similar um, reactions or responses in terms of the variability of answers. Now I'll give you an example for the modern context. Um, commercial insurance. Is commercial insurance halal? One side will have a group of scholars who will be like, yeah, it's got an element of liba, usually. And it's got, you know, it's got this, this thing called garab, uncertainty or chance or risk, right? Because it has this, they will study the policy back to front, and they will say, okay, this aspect, it relates to this hadith, it relates to this concept in Islamic finance, and so on and so forth. And then they would come to a conclusion, yeah, because it has this, and because of, because of other factors, right? Because of other factors, um, we would say that it's haram. But then there would be other scholars on the other side. Yeah, you're thinking about riba. Yeah, that's not really very accurate. Actually, riba is this, and what's happening here is not exactly riba because there is a clause here which makes it different from riba. Therefore, it's not riba, and it's it's definitely not haram as well. Risk or uncertainty or chance, whatever you want to call it, because blah blah blah, and therefore it's completely halal. What's wrong with it, right? So you'll have that variability in these different responses as time goes by, as new novel issues arise. You will have various responses to various questions. So the answer to that first one was pretty much that. Hopefully, that answers your question. How do you deal with having an LGBTQI friend? How do I deal with? <laughs> I don't have friends. <laughs> um, okay, now, but on a more serious note, yes, that is a very difficult question. In the sense, it is multi-layered. There is the moral question of, of adopting a particular lifestyle, right? There is that moral question. Is, is an act of intimacy between the same genders outside of the institution of marriage, is this, is this morally acceptable in Islam? The question to that would be extramarital, premarital, and whatever other word, marital, apart from marital, um, all Muslims would pretty much agree, uh-uh, there ain't no way that that's going to be halal. 
But that's the question of the moral issue. What about how do you treat a person like that? How do you treat a person like that? Is it okay to be social with a person like that? Is it okay to have cordial relations with a person like that? Is it so? Those are questions which many of our Muslim scholars are giving answers to, and those are possibly not as clear-cut as the first question, which is the moral issue. Right? So as far as our morality goes, there are certain things which are fixed, and this is one of those fixed issues. However, how we treat people who, who have adopted that lifestyle, then we say that there is a lot of precedent, in fact, there is Quranic precedent for us to have, um, in fact, I would say it is an obligation for us to even you know, go a step further, in making sure that we hold ourselves up to the highest standards in our treatment of people whom we even maybe morally disagree with. A person who drinks, for example, and now this is just, these are just examples in order to bring us closer to understanding uh, the similarities in the issue. A person who drinks alcohol, who consumes alcohol. How many university students here? Raise your hands. Come on, we're going to go through this whole thing of who's sleeping and who's not again. <laughs> University students, hello. Okay, that's better. So, at university, I'm pretty sure you had friends, right? You weren't like me. You had friends and you interacted with people who are not from your faith. Am I right? Now, for this one, I need an answer. Yes, yes okay, there we go. Now, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure, you would have come across maybe conversations, maybe you were exposed to certain things on your Facebook feed of friends from university or whatever, where they are having pictures, selfies at a, I don't know, at a pub or something, right? And they have a different morality and they do things which we morally disagree with. Isn't that correct? Now, do we go and say, I can't interact with this person, I'm just going to stick to having no friends. That's not what we do. We separate that moral sin and that moral, that moral belief that we have um, from the treatment of that person as well. And we do this all the time with Muslims and we do this with non-Muslims. Now, in the same way, right, the way we treat others, now, that of course does not also mean that we compromise on our moral stance. And that's a difference, right? We should maintain our moral stance when that moral stance is warranted. There are areas, as we said, there is a bit of negotiation between the scholars. It's not a fixed issue. In those areas which are not fixed, we cannot make it a moral issue that Islam says X. Islam says a person, a person who holds his hand here in the prayer is, is sinful or a person of bid'ah. Right? We cannot say that. Why? It's not an Islamic issue. It is an issue which Muslims have discussed, which doesn't necessarily represent Islam. It's just a discussion um, which, yes, translates into practice at some level as well. So where areas are fixed, 
we take, we are firm on the moral stance, on the, on the actual stance, and where the issue is not fixed, we are not as, as firm on the stance. We are flexible, inshallah. Um, so I hope that answers the question. That's in general. I will, I will obviously be speaking in generalities on the basis that there will be a few questions which I can't really say if you meet someone at the, in the classroom, then you can do this. And then next scenario. So I'm just giving generalities in order for us to understand the general kind of you know, outlook, inshallah. What are the gender roles in Islam? Okay, that's a very vague question. Um, but I'll try to answer it in as much detail as possible. It's a good question, but I just need more specifics. So, gender roles in Islam, um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks a lot about men, women, what men should do, what women should do, um, who are men, who are women, what are the descriptions of men, what are the descriptions of women. And we'll find, for example, one of the wives of the Prophet she actually questioned the Prophet that Allah is always talking about men. He's always talking about, you know, mu'mineen and sadiqeen and qaniteen and so on. The righteous men, the, right, the, the truthful men, the believing men. And the Prophet the way he responded was, when, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about men, he's actually also speaking about women. It's a language thing. Right? When we say mankind, mankind really? Why not womankind? It's a language thing, right? So the Prophet ﷺ explained it in this manner, and it was reinforced. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse Inna al mu'minina wal mu'minati wal muslimina wal muslimati wa qanitina wal qanitati wal sadiqina wal sadiqati wal sabirina wal sabirati wal khashirina wal khashirati wal mutasaddiqina wal mutasaddiqati wal sa'imina wal sa'imati wal hafidina furujahum wal hafidati the believing men and the believing women, the truthful men and the truthful women, the this man and the that woman. And so on. The whole ayah is just speaking about men with those qualities, women with those qualities. So, from a spiritual, you know, standpoint, um, we are all equal in the eyes of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. The only thing that makes us distinct is through taqwa. Inna akramakum atqakum. The ones who are able to attain more taqwa through their internal state and their external state, right, and their external practice. Right? They come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the degree of you know, progress and they will diminish with their degree of regress. Does that make sense? Now that's from a spiritual standpoint. Now as far as societal norms go and should a woman work, should a man I don't cook, a woman, you get the point, right? I, I can't really think right now of more examples, but you get the point. So, um, these questions, they are more to do with culture. Well, a lot of those questions, not all of them, a lot of those questions have more to do with culture than actual religious instruction. Now, I'll make this a bit more clear. 
There are some areas where we can say uh, men and women are distinct. How can we not believe that? Right? Biologically, we're, we're different. Physiologically, physiognomically, I don't know what's the right words. But you get my point, right? We're different in the way we look, in the way our bodies function, in the way we're emotionally made up. Right? We're different, generally speaking. Like the you know the the normal and the general makeup of men and women is different. And this is not just a fact that that Muslims accept, it's something that is, is pretty universal. They only have a difference as to okay, what's what's the same? They agree that there's a difference between the two, but they they differ on what are the things in which they're different in and what are the things in which you should be the same does that make sense now from that standpoint i think everyone would agree that we agree on that now the differences would be in what things are we the same in what things are we different and there is where we can say there are areas where islam has said x and it's fixed there are areas where Islam has said why you know, for men and it's fixed. For example, there are responsibilities that have been placed on men. And they said, you need to be the financial provider. If you don't do that, you're messed up. Right? Now, if a woman does that, you're not messed up. Why? Because that's not your responsibility. Right? Now that, you can say, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying discrimination in a negative sense, I'm saying discrimination in just the factual sense. Right? There is discrimination between the genders in those areas. I'm not, once again, please don't misquote me. I am not saying this in the negative sense, I am saying in the factual sense, they are different, they are distinct. There is, um, uh, there is discrimination in the fact that they are different, if we know what the meaning of discrimination is, right? So there is that difference that Islam makes in certain areas. Now, in the same way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed a, you can say burden, responsibility, whatever you want to call it, on men which he hasn't placed on women in certain things, in the same way, there are areas, like for example, I've always been thinking, hey, how come women get a break from praying? <laughs> right? And then, and then you think to yourself, okay, mashallah, you know, there's wisdom behind it and all of those sorts of things. So, you know, you've got to be understanding in the sense there is description. <laughs> there is discrimination in that sense. In both areas, where where one one gender will get a certain set of rules, and those rules will be fixed, and the other gender will get a certain set of rules, and those rules will be fixed, and then there are a lot of areas which we would say the majority of areas in gender roles would be areas which the culture would define it. So, let me go a bit further and I'll just give one or two examples and we'll end with that the way so for example 
we cover ourselves, and there is a minimum, you know, um, you know, a minimum awrah for men and for women. Now, what what a person would wear in Saudi Arabia, and what would be normal for them to wear, it will be like a long thobe with those red, uh, with a with a red utra and the thing, and they're doing like they're doing extreme sports in a jubba. Right? That would be the normal thing to do in Saudi Arabia. Whereas over here, you dress like that, like, is this guy okay? Right? So that would be, so there you get a cultural distinction. Now, a guy who's in Perth might be a Muslim. The normal for him to do would be like he'd be in a three quarters, in a, in a t shirt or whatever, right? And that would be pretty normal. It won't be looked at as anything outside of that culture. Now, let's go to hijab, for instance. The hijab in Saudi Arabia, right, or black, right, New Zealand colors, <laughs> right, and then, yeah, with this one I can't really control it because they're not my questions. Okay, maybe you've got a point there. They are my answers, though. Um, yeah, so black clothes, right? Now, in Malaysia, as an example. Would they wear the same colors for their hijab? Most probably not. I see a lot of, a lot of colorful stuff happening there um, in other places around the world. And, and, right, it's not looked at as something irreligious per se. Everyone's like, yeah, that's, that's normal. What's wrong with this hijab? But you wear that Malaysian hijab, for instance, in a place like Saudi Arabia, in certain areas, and they'd be looking at you like you're the most haramist person in the world, right? So that's what we mean by many of these areas, they are shaped by culture and not shaped by an actual religious instruction. There are certainly, for example, the areas to cover, the areas to cover off the body, certain elements of it are, yes, fixed, right? But what do we cover it with? And what are the cultural garments that we would use to cover those areas of the body that won't be fixed, that will be dictated by culture, if that makes sense, right? So, yeah, I, I, hopefully I've answered that question, but if not, catch me before I run after this. It is stated in Surah Al-Nabah that we were created in pairs. What is its relation with the idea of polygamy? Okay, I'm going to start And we have created you in pairs. Now, this created you in pairs, by the way. Um, it is not necessarily anything to do with law or how you practice and what that means in your interaction with each other as peers. Does that make sense? It has to do more with the nature with which the existential reality with which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created certain creations. In fact, we find for example in the story of Nuh alayhi salam, He's talking about the pairs of animals. 
the pairs of animals and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, he gathered them all through Nuh alayhi salam and how Nuh alayhi salam he got on board the pairs of animals and in various places in the Quran you'll find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created you in pairs Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created other creation in pairs as well that's speaking more about the existential reality of that species of that being it's not speaking about how they should interact with each other how they should interact with each other is a different domain that is instruction from Allah marry marry two three four etc right now what is its relation with the idea of polygamy um, I would say no relation in the sense of what it means um, you know for um, for instructing us whether to do or practice or not to practice polygamy, it doesn't really um, have any bearing on that. Next question. From what I understand, every sect has its interpretation to an ayah. Can we use another sect's interpretation? A good question. Um, yes, every sect has an interpretation of an ayah. And can we use this? Uh, okay. If we do a historical, historical study of sects, of groups and this goes all the way back to the formative period of Islam the early period of Islam where things were not really as as cemented as they are right now right now it's like yeah do you believe in the in the in the hadith only approach oh yeah this guy's a Salafi that's it like you've already boxed the thing and this guy's like this guy's always speaking about the heart yeah Sufi dude um, <laughs> you get what I'm saying so Everything's kind of cemented and, and already boxed in the age that we live in. Um, the, the trends and the different ideas have kind of already been fixed with a particular sect or a group or an, ide or an ideology. Um, and they've kind of been very, very much, you, you, can, say, you can say, associated or imposed on a particular group or understanding now that obviously means that if we do adopt now this is the question of if if I am a, if I'm a Sunni Muslim for example and I decide to say hey look you know um, as Sunni Muslims as later Sunni Muslims just to be very accurate um, later Sunni Muslims would say the orthodox, the traditional, the fixed, the unchallengeable opinion is that we cannot speak anything about the historical disputes between the Sahaba. We speak only good of them. Okay, good stuff. Now, a person might come and say, yeah, let's talk about the, the, the battle between Ali anhu and Muawiyah anhu. Let's talk about it historically. Let's talk about it and then right at the end we'll conclude that Muawiyah was wrong. Right? Or, or for example, Ali had issues with Abu Bakr. Really? It's in Bukhari. Right? Now, <laughs> there's 
there are things which happened in early Islam which were not as clear-cut as we perhaps make it out to be in our times. Maybe because of ignorance, maybe because of, I don't know, other reasons. But the short answer to the question is, in principle, um, in principle as in as a broad as a broad you know methodology or view no but in the tertiary issues in the secondary issues yes I don't know if that really makes sense but there are areas in aqidah even in theology in belief systems which are not as clear-cut which are not as clear-cut, even if people make it out to be like that. It is not as clear-cut. And, uh, you know, this, this is, an, this is a, an area of interest to me as well. Um, you know, looking at the different early sects in Islam and seeing the development of these sects and the impact of those you know, sects on modern movements and modern trends. And my conclusion, I mean, at one point in my life, I'll be honest with you, I used to be like, yeah, a hardcore, this group, 2007. Then, 2008, 9-ish, they're like, hardcore, the opposite group, like literally. <laughs> it was weird. And then, a few years later, like, yeah, hardcore, no group. <laughs> and, you know, the more you study, the more you realize and the more you, and this will only happen by the way if you keep studying. If you stop and you're like, yeah, I've made my conclusions, then you would be, you would be stuck. And you wouldn't be able to focus on the issues. You would be focusing on the labels and the personalities and the group, um, you know, groupthink mentality, right? You won't be focusing on the issues at hand and addressing them and dealing with them in a more, um, in a more evidence-based kind of way. Hope that answers the question. How to help a close friend that's been led astray, um, drinking, partying, etc., but when given advice, isn't taking it seriously. Look, Allahu a'lam. Um, this, it is a difficult issue because you care about people and people care about you and you know sometimes you have a very strong connection with people and it's hard to let them know that you know they're harming themselves or that they're going down a path which will eventually lead to um, their own sadness maybe perhaps their own grief and perhaps it will lead maybe down a line where it will be hard for them to recover when they want to recover, if they want to recover at some point. But the general advice that I would say um, has helped me um, and helped others that uh, I've spoken to as well, is that you can never force someone or be aggressive and be very militant about your, about your advice to people. It should not be that we Every time we see a person, yeah, let's talk about this issue, let's talk about your drinking, <laughs> right? That would put a person off. Now, as an example, a person's drinking, maybe you've brought it up with them once, and perhaps it's not, it's not followed through and you don't see any change. 
well, you know, at the end of the day, as my mother always says, you don't have control over what other people do. You only have control over what you do. Wise mum. Wise mum. So um, I would say, just take it easy. Um, be actively, like, if you show care, if you show, if you show genuine concern and you're not like just, I want to win this debate. Yeah. <laughs> if you're not like that and if you're just, you know, just, yeah, let's hang out, let's sit down, let's go for dinner. Let's talk about things. Let them speak, right? Maybe you'll be able to understand a lot of what they're going through, why they're going through that as well. And maybe you might be able to help them through like an emotional situation or a social situation and perhaps helping them through that they will perhaps be able to be in a place where they are receptive to the idea of um, the role of religion in their life perhaps so inshallah hopefully that helps what role do women have islamically what if the female does not want a traditional housewife role is there anything wrong with that um, short answer, no, there's nothing wrong with that, inshallah, they are based on negotiation, if you want to work, you know, as long as the, uh, you know, the, the activities and the workplace, I mean, that's a given, it's not something which we advise men, like, men, when you go out to work, make sure you're not working at a pub, like, yeah, I know that, <laughs> right, so in the same way, or, or, or like, make sure when you go to work, you're, you're not flirting with the opposite gender. Yeah, I know that too. And I know everyone struggles with it. And yes, it's, it's an individual struggle. But at the same time, um, with those caveats that you would normally even give men, yeah, why not? Inshallah, I see nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, as long as, you know, it's, it should be done with communication, as with any marriage. Right? It should be good and strong communication. And if that's the arrangement that you're both happy with, then yeah, go for it. Is it what's your opinion on Islamic feminism? There are so many, so many different waves, strands of feminism that it's just hard to say what you're referring to. So if, I don't know, like it depends which one you're talking about and what are the ideas of that type, right? So I cannot really give a clear-cut answer like, yes, I'm all for Islamic feminism or I'm all against Islamic feminism. It's just, my thing is just this. Feminism has brought about benefits. Has brought about benefits, you know, from certain worldviews and certain paradigms and perhaps you can say it's more to address um, the, the cultural oppression that has systematically been, been done by different cultures and different societies and perhaps even different religions, right? Um, and different communities and different ages as well, right? So feminism has come as a reaction to that, you know, to address those wrongs that were done and that are and that are systematically being done now does that mean that everything associated with that movement will be islamically approved no it just means we'd have to look at i mean because 
Feminism in our times have become, has become so fragmented as well in the sense there are so many kinds and strands and we're now what, in, in fourth wave, fifth wave feminism? Who knows, right? But um, the point is it's hard to make, um, it's hard to give definitive you know, statements in general and say Islamic feminism, yes or Islamic feminism, no, it just has to be looked at what do you mean when you say Islamic feminism and on the basis of that we would be able to talk about it a little bit more. Um, Salam's brother, are we allowed to pray Dhuhr and Asr and or Maghrib and Isha together if needed and did the Prophet do this at times? There are different madahib, ha- uh, um, yes, but there are different schools of practice of law that have a different idea, have a different conception of how that is worked out. So for example, in the Hanafi madhab, um, the general practice is there is jam'u suri, which is basically um, joining the prayers um, in a way which, which does not conflict with the timings of prayer. What do I mean by this? Right at the end of the dhahr time, it's like asr time is at 3.24. Okay, I'm going to pray at 3.18, depending on which surah I'm going to read. Well, asr, then it's going to be 3.19. But, so you would pray dhahr at that time, and then, and then asr azan, the asr azan will be given, and then you'd pray asr straight away after that. That would be the form that it would take in the Hanafi school, for example. But there is a detail to that as well. Many Hanafis in our times, many of my classmates who were Hanafis, they were like, yeah, we don't follow that one. It's uh, too hard, that one. <laughs> so we, we do it in the way that the other schools do it as well. And there are modern Hanafis. Well, not modern, I would say. It, 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 has, it has its precedence in early Islam as well. But they practice, a lot of them, a minority of them also practice um, the one that the majority practice, which is that you could either pray Zahr at Asr time with Asr, or you could pray Asr in, in Zahr time with Zahr. So you can prepone Asr or postpone Zahr. Same thing with Maghrib and Isha. Um, I hope that answers the question. Interpretation of engagement in relation to being married. Yeah, there is a period of khutbah, which is called khutbah in Islam. Um, engagement period. This is a period in which the normal rules of non-marriage apply, i.e. we're still non-mahrams, all the rules still apply. However, there is leeway for you know, getting to know the other person. Now what that means and how that translates um, into modern ways of interacting with people and modern in modern settings that would differ from issue to issue and person to person and situation to situation but in general in the engagement period yes you know a lot of people think I cannot see my spouse before marriage and it's like it's got to be like you know like that in fact it's the exact opposite we have a hadith which actually instruct which encourage that people go and see your spouse. It's, it's weird if you're like on the marriage day, like, yeah, she's not that attractive. <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> or he's not, yeah. 
that's, that's going to be awkward. So the Prophet has actually encouraged that. We'll move on to the next question. I don't know if that answers the question, but if you can, let's try to be a bit more specific so maybe it might answer your questions um, in a more targeted way. Is it okay to stand up for someone of the LGBT community when there is a clear injustice happening to them, violence, bullying, or is it best to stay quiet? Okay, good question. Because a lot of stuff is happening here as well, overseas, especially in the US. We have, we have Muslim activists who are fighting for the rights of LGBT communities. And they are doing it publicly, and they are doing it very unabashedly as well. Uh, what's the Islamic response? Hey, it once again, it depends. There are issues which have been discussed by scholars of the past. For example, Ibn al-Qayyim um, in his Ahkamu Ahl al-Dhimma, um, a medieval scholar of Islam, maybe you've heard of him, um, he wrote a, a work on the rulings of the people, the non-Muslim people who live under a Muslim polity, who live under a Muslim state, right? Um, and in that he discusses various rulings, but one of the rulings that he discusses is um, Zoroastrians or people from other faiths who, you know, who morally accept certain acts. And he actually discusses, billah, incest. Incest was a practice which was acceptable um, to that religious community at that time. Maybe things have changed, I don't know. But at that time, that was a reality. And there were a group of people who were living under the Muslim polity um, who would see that as morally acceptable and they would practice that. So, Ibn Qayyim, very surprisingly, he would say, well, we have to fulfill their rights and the laws that would normally apply to Muslims um, in normal circumstances where if they would engage in an act of that nature, there would be consequences, legal consequences in a Muslim polity, right? The same consequences would not apply to um, the other religious community who doesn't believe it to be that way. And there were many laws like that where they had non-Muslim quarters, they had um, non-Muslim, you know, populated areas, for example, or garrisons even, um, where non-Muslims would be living predominantly. And they would, um, they would govern themselves with their own practices and laws. They would, they would be drinking alcohol, yes, absolutely. They would be doing all these other things which would, not, uh, which would not normally be allowed for Muslims to do, and for which Muslims would have legal consequences. Now, getting back to your question, Based on this, some, some modern scholars, and I would say they are a minority, but they are there, um, who would say that on the basis of this, you know, securing the rights and the freedoms of the LGBT communities um, in, a, in a political situation, not from a moral standpoint. So as Muslims, the moral standpoint is clear. But what they say is, from a political standpoint, i.e., they should receive equal rights as other citizens. They should receive 
you know, acceptance from the other communities just like other oppressed, you know, minorities and so on, right? They want to secure uh, the civil rights of the LGBT communities as well, right? They would say that this is something now, once again, I'm not advocating for this, I'm just mentioning a fact. This is something that they do and they say that this is Islamically justified and the basis of this is the precedent that we find in various legal fiqh manuals of the past. Um, my personal, like my personal stance is, yeah, I would disagree with that on certain grounds. I won't get into that now, but um, at the same time, uh, well, I would say civil freedoms in the sense if they are being oppressed, their rights are being taken on the basis of you know um, specific incidents, specific incidents then that is something which I don't see any problem where Muslims get involved with that. But as far as legalizing certain things, legalizing certain things, right? I don't see much merit to that. At the same time, I don't say that those people who advocate for that are people who are irreligious or, or anything of that nature. I would say I strongly disagree with that. However, you know, it's, it's not a massive deal. Um, so, so the question I ask you is, would we get involved if, for example, alcohol is prohibited? And now there is a movement to try to legalize alcohol, alcohol consumption in the country, and, and sale of alcohol, and so on. As Muslims, morally, there's a clear standpoint. Now, would we become a part of the movement that wants to legalize alcohol consumption? Wallahu a'lam. I mean, from a, moral, from a moral standpoint, I don't see how, um, you know, getting involved in legalizing something which is morally haram for us, I would say the maximum we can do is not say anything and not get involved and just stay quiet and yeah well if you get it legalized free country if you don't get it legalized I'm still pretty happy because that's in line with my um, you know my moral convictions if that makes sense so I would take that approach you personally but if someone is more positively involved in in something like that um, I mean it's a dangerous it's a dangerous, maybe technical issue because maybe some people who get involved with that, they do not necessarily understand uh, this moral standpoint, uh, the political you know, standpoint. They might not understand the distinction and the nuances between the two. They might get involved on the basis that, yeah, even from a moral standpoint, you know, Islam or whatever. And that's why I feel it's a, it's a very thin line but, you know, wallahu a'lam. That's all I would say. My family is really Salafi, and my husband is Sufi. <laughs> uh, how do you reconcile and navigate the difference? What about attending Mawlids? Mate, you gotta talk to your wife or 
lady, you've got to talk to your husband. <laughs> like, um, okay, here's how I would do it, but you can arrange that. How I would, how I would do it if I was faced with that situation would be, hey, I practice my faith like this. And where it doesn't really involve common interests, like the bringing up of a child, for example, and how, like, what ideas to basically expose them to, then that's something which is more common where I need to consult with you, you need to consult with me. Whereas, do I attend molids? Or do I, I don't know, do I pray this way? Or do I understand hadith like this? Or do I, am I a very literalist? Or am I very like that? That's something which I would say at an individual level, at, a, at, at an individual practice level, that is something which I don't think there is any scope, even if you're husband and wife, um, for anyone to get involved in, you should pray like this, or you should believe like this. Those issues, they should have been straightened out honestly before getting married. Like, hey, are you like that kind of Muslim? If you have those, you know, if you have those anxieties about those type of issues, right? That should have been straightened out before marriage and said, what's your views on Islam? That type of thing. Ah, oh, time up. Cool. So do I just stop now? Or? Yeah? The next question? Last question. Okay, so after this or this one? After, after this, all right. So um, I would say it's not anybody's business, even if it's the husband or the wife, and that if it was your business, it should have been straightened out before marriage. If it's after marriage, well, I guess you just have to deal with it um, in a way which is reasonable. Speak to each other, communicate, have some time out. Go on a date. <laughs> Next question and last. Does there come a time where we as Muslims need to actively wage some sort of jihad against the liberalization of society? That sounds ambitious. I like this guy. Okay. Um, no. <laughs> jihad of the nafs. <laughs> Jihad of the nafs, bro. <laughs> okay, please don't look at me like I'm a Sufi. But, okay. Um, yes. Not yes to the question. Um, jihad is something which is a part of Islam. I don't know what that means, that question, really, um, and what it entails. So I will just answer in the best way that I can. Uh, jihad is a part of Islam. Historically speaking, jihad was used for various forms of struggle, as we all know. One of those types of struggles was um, through intellectual exchange. وَجَاهِدْ بِهِ جِهَادًا كَبِيرًا It's in the Qur'an. That sounded mighty, right? But وَجَاهِدْ بِهِ جِهَادًا كَبِيرًا It's more like, and do jihad with them, the biggest jihad. That's talking about the Qur'an. Through intellectual you know, debate, using the ideas and the notions that are there in the Qur'an. But there are notions of jihad which go beyond the intellectual struggle, right? And that is that a lot of it has to do with working on yourself, on making yourself better and connecting yourself with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And 
treating other people right and fulfilling their rights and fulfilling your responsibilities as a member of the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And finally, yes, historically speaking, in the lifetime of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, there were instances where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would have to militarily engage with, with people of, um, of a different city, of a different area, ge geographical area, of a different you know, political entity. Um, and they were done sometimes, according to some, according to Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, they were always done in the sense of defense. Um, according to others, they were done in the sense of defense and sometimes in the sense of an offense, but offensive defense. Right? That's what um, they've said. Now, this is a reality, and this is something which the Prophet ﷺ engaged in, which no one can deny. Um, however, what are its modern-day applications? And very simply, I would say, the modern-day applications would be the government decides. A Muslim government would decide, and then that brings up the whole point, well, are, are Muslim governments even really actually Muslimish, doing Muslim things? Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, but let's keep it simple for now. In essence, what we can say is Muslim entities, political entities, are people who make that decision of, of engaging militarily or not. My personal view, um, as far as, and my personal view has no effect on anybody whatsoever so it's just like some random dude in an armchair watching football and saying yeah i should have scored that goal so it's kind of like that people who actually give opinions are people who are involved in the political process who are involved um, in the consultation process and so on uh, but anyway theoretically speaking my personal view is it's um, in line with a great scholar of our time, Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya, who says in simple that modern warfare involves a lot of collateral damage, a lot. And it's not the same kind of warfare that was done um, at the time of the Prophet or before you know, these really destructive devices were invented. And so therefore, he believes, and I, I support this, and... I support this not because I don't believe that there is something like military jihad that existed. I say this because modern warfare, it doesn't, it's not really consistent with the, the ethics of Islamic warfare. It's not in any shape or form. And so that's why I believe that um, even um, any Islamic polity should think very, very hard before they get involved, um, you know, militarily in some area. Um, and that's just my personal view, as I said. But yeah, that's. Um, does that answer the question? Liberalization of society. Hey, wait, I think I went down a different rabbit hole. Liberalization of society? Our society? Oh, no, absolutely not. If you're talking militarily or getting involved physically in some kind of physical aggression, no, and if you're thinking of that, come and speak to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Just to add to that, like, uh, it 
Yeah. As a, as a way of uh, stopping and preventing. Yes, so as far as, as far as engaging socially and politically, um, I'm sorry, man, it's, it wasn't me. Um, as far as being involved in your community, that's something that as Muslims I would say we are heavily lacking in. Sometimes as Muslims we think being religious means going to the mosque and to pray and to do dhikr and all of that stuff. Yes, that's a part of Islam. We need to go for hajj, we need to fast the month of Ramadan, we need to do all of those things. But as, as a society, we seriously need to start thinking about being involved in our country. And I'm not just saying, yeah, become you know, members of the media and get involved in politics and get involved in, in you know, civil society. I'm also talking about getting involved in, in activities and projects which benefit society, just generally, just they increase and they improve, um, you know, the human quality of life, where, you know, you, you get involved in projects like, like, like uh, which address domestic violence, for example, um, or other issues of that nature, where you get involved in the process of helping people and bettering society. And a lot of people think, yeah, that's like a non-Muslim thing. It's not. It's a Muslim thing. It's a Muslim thing that we should have been doing and we should be getting involved in. Yes, perhaps there are certain details in those things which where we will need to navigate in a few areas. But in general, these are things that should be our causes and we should get involved in these things. And only by engaging and being involved in these in these in these different facets of life um, will we will we be able to improve as a Muslim community and contribute as we should to the community that we belong to, inshallah. Hope that answers the question, inshallah.